0: LETTER TEN Did you know the Almighty can hear what you think? The chaplain said so. But the chaplain is a pervmonger. Forgive me, O Lord, but just because I like to sit quietly in the chaplain's chapel, it don't mean I need none of his sermoning. Especially not the touchy-feely sort he likes. First he grabs my elbow. I didn't bother flinching. I keeps my head down. It's when he slips his hand on my knee I looks up, and my eyebrows is nicely arched. He whipped his hand away then, sharpish. Only, he didn't waste no time wagging his finger and sermoning how nothing can be hid from our good Lord above. Because the Almighty can hear what you think. Too right, I think. Then I think, it ain't just the Almighty listening, is it, O Lord? Anyone could have seen what the chaplain had on his mind, loud and clear, soon as he plonked himself next to me. But my side of the story ain't about what goes on in the filthy brains of a chaplain. My side of the story is the gospel according to Marley Godwin. Don't even think I'm having a laugh. If you were sat with me now, you would see how I took the holy book in both my empty hands, and on that book, what I will swear is this. I will say nothing but the truth, and the whole truth, and nothing but the whole truth about what happened to Scarly. Or so help me, I shall give myself enough flagellations and what have you, to scourge all the sinning there ever was. There, are you satisfied now? Hear my first confession: Being with Scarly was like what happens on roller coasters. Have you been on them? I don't suppose you have. Just so you know, being on roller coasters is bonkers, but people do it anyways. That's exactly how it was with Scarly. She was bonkers, but I loved every thrilling second. It's her family I can't stomach. May the Lord protect us from that poxy crew sniffing about worse than a gang of foster carers. Uncle Jack did most of the troublemaking. It don't matter if him and me are next of kin. I could say a thing or two Scarly told me about that dark piece of work. You only need ask. By the way, have you seen how I don't even think rude words no more? This was a revelation. I noticed it after the chaplain fondled my knee. I said nothing rude. Then he turned round and said there's space for one more in his Bible group. He's got a grin on his chin. I too was all smiles and politeness. Not one smutty thought crossed my lips. It was as if I was blowing the bloke kisses which proves the chaplain can't hear no word my brain is thinking, because my brain was clear as day. My thinking was, you can stick your sodding Bible group where the sun don't shine. Only what I said was, it's kind of you to ask your holiness. I'll put it to the good Lord directly and see what he has to say. Not only is it a miracle I didn't give the chaplain what for, when I said those words, it was Scarly herself speaking through me. I can hear the way she talked things over in a tight spot, because Scarly was brainy as, pardon my French, when you get to be that brainy, it means you hardly don't need to blaspheme no more. And with that, the chaplain was on his merry way. Praise be the Lord. By his grin, it was no secret neither. He still fancies his chances. Once the coast was clear, my dealer popped in the chapel. She sat alongside. We don't say nothing. I knows what she's thinking. She knows what I'm thinking. She bungs me her bagged-up dazzle. I bung her some notes. Then she's off on her merry way, too. But, O Lord in heaven above, you know this already. Ain't that right? Cause you know everything, O my Lord. You know how chemicals don't make me blind no more. Amen. And you know how a girl's got to make a living somehow when there ain't nothing within reach worth nicking. Which is my second confession in a nutshell. I turned myself into a drug dealer. Only... Please don't tell no one, O dear Lord, or I will have to get my solicitor on to you. Speaking of which, I will whisper two things in your ear. The first is, I might be sinful, but I ain't wicked. It's hard work being me and my poor dead soul. That's why I get the Almighty to listen in to what I'm thinking most days. And what the Almighty tells me is this, my solicitor will come and rescue me and my poor dead soul. It is foretold. All me and my poor dead soul needs while we wait for you to turn up is a few more miracles, preferably in cash. Hear my third confession. There was argy-bargy between me and Scarly. There was quarrels. We pulled each other's hair. But that's what sisters are for. Shall I tell you what happened? She was delusioning, that's what. There weren't no warning. After Granny Grunt come along one night, Scarly lost it completely. One minute we was drinking vodka like it's Fanta. Next minute, she's gone balmy. Call me Misery Guts, but soon as I seen the Grunt, I never liked her. This was who you called. Louise, she had Scarly in her clutches. All she'd done was show her ugly mug through the door, and Scarly was away with the fairies. My bile comes out then. I said profanes and rudities I didn't know exist. That's when Scarly come up with her numpty story about secret agents. She thought they hung about in parked cars so they can pry on us all day long. She thought they was plotting and that's why I needed to have a wig on. This was Scarly's big plan to outsmart all the secret agents sitting outside. Her plan was I leave the house in plain sight next morning. Only the secret agents follow me instead of her cause I got a wig on. And this will make them think she's pretending to be me in disguise. I goes to Scarly, You need medical interventions. That don't come close to standing up in court. Then I says, why don't you tell what's really going on between you and your granny? That's when we started shouting and pulling hairs. A vase with flowers in broke after it hit the wall. When that happened, Scarly drew herself up. She held her hand in the air for me to stop hopping about. I go still as a sausage. After breathing in, Scarly reveals all. She says her beanstalk bloke weren't just a complete pardon my French. He was the vilest, most richest bloke you ever known. Ever since he got her preggers, he was a menace. Then she takes a mouthful of air and says it all again, only more loony than ever, how her ex-pardon, my French, is getting his secret agents to stalk her. Here my fourth confession. Seeing my sister like that was freaky. I told myself, what would psychologists do? Myself told me right back. They would wait and see where all of this was going. So I bit my tongue. I tidied the roses and broken bits of pottery off the floor. I told Scarley she should have said before about the secret agents. I even said how it will be hilarious going about with a wig on next day if that's what it took to stop her being a fruitcake. I didn't say the word being a fruitcake, but I thought it. I don't suppose your sort play along with lunatics? you adore so much they make your heart hurt. I got good at it. Soon as I told Scarly I will wear her crackpot disguise, she pours the rest of the vodka out into pint jars. It didn't make no odds to me. The drink don't make me drunk no more. But we was back to our old self again. It was as if the grunt never come by. But only as if. The whole time afterwards, me and Scarly was only ever pretending. Crack of dawn next day, she's got her wig ready to crown me with. She's got clothes ready for me to wear, different from hers. In the kitchen, while I tried to eat a bowl of Cocoa Pops, Scarly is smudging red lipstick on my face. I wiped it away and made a mess of it. She said that was perfect it made my mouth look even huger and more different from hers as I was slipping out the door she gets her crazy sunnies out the lenses on them was so big and round they hid my face I got handed a watch of cash then Scarly tells me my secret mission is to go round the shops and don't come back before dinner time so off I goes I mooch down the street I go past all the tommy cats staring. I go past the laughing sparrows. I look like something escaped from a night out. I get as far as a row of trees round the corner, and that's where I was waiting. She was off to the train station. She has long strides. I thought it best to linger, then run along after. Each time I catched up, I had to find places to dodge to. Scarley kept looking over her shoulders. She went rushing cross roads and dipping round bends. Even when it didn't make no sense, she sat on a bench with her legs crossed like she was waiting for a bus. Only it weren't no bus stop. It was like she really believed secret agents were staring at her from behind trees. As we was ducking and diving, I seen a red car with two podgy lads in front. They was going slow in traffic. I didn't think nothing of it. They passed Scarly and drove on. She goes in the station. I seen her running in. My slowness nearly made me miss the 0932, which is the train she hopped on. As I run in the station, I seen the red car again. It was parked outside. I got on the train just in time. I had to go through all the carriages to find where Scarly was. I got to the carriage she was dozing in. I was still out of breath from running all over, but I was holding my breath. I didn't step one foot in Scarly's carriage, cause one of the podgy lads out of the red car was sat just two rows behind her, reading his Daily Mail I told you about the arranged meeting with Charlotte at Liverpool Street Station, pretty much as Louise described it to me when I went to visit her. At first, Louise didn't believe she would have the stamina to see Charlotte again. She had papers to mark. She was scheduled to teach in the afternoon. She claimed that her jealousy had evaporated, that it had been replaced by fatigue. We didn't think this was true. But Louise insisted that it was only because she was so worried for Charlotte that she went to Liverpool Street. The plan was to meet at a café overlooking the station concourse. The station was busy. Charlotte was nowhere. Louise ordered a pot of tea and waited. She waited all of forty minutes. It was as she was getting ready to leave that Charlotte came rushing out of a throng. Because of the timing of this, it appeared to Louise as if Charlotte had been watching her. The meeting began clumsily. They fell into a tense silence. Louise said she was conscious of wanting to relax the muscles in her face. She felt that the most pressing questions on her mind about this person called Marley were likely to be etched over her features. But Charlotte wasn't even looking at Louise. She was looking at the waves of faces swirling around in the station. She was clearly anxious, chewing her nails, which Louise had never seen her do before. When Charlotte's eyes finally did come to rest on Louise's face, she said, You don't know the half of it. It's a fucking mess. It was very unusual for Charlotte to swear. Louise took it as a signal. What she imagined was that Charlotte was in some kind of danger. She imagined Marley having something to do with this. She may even have hoped for it. But what Charlotte said next was more alarming than any scenario Louise could have come up with. She said, I know you won't believe this, but Julius Haft is trying to kill me." A shiver of panic made Louise break eye contact. She heard Charlotte scoff and say, "'Fuck! I knew you wouldn't believe it!' But Louise didn't know what to believe. She couldn't bring herself to follow Charlotte's steady, if not rude, gaze at the faces of each commuter that walked by. Instead, She stared long and hard at a pigeon with one leg. The pigeon was hobbling along the ground nearby. The whole of Liverpool Street seemed to go quiet. Not only was Louise at a complete loss, she was afraid that if she had any reaction at all, it would make things worse. She tried to remember if she'd smelled alcohol on Charlotte's breath when they greeted each other. In the eerie silence of those jarring moments, what crystallized was her worst fear, that Charlotte had developed a psychotic illness. I was absorbed making a note of what she was saying. I hadn't noticed that she'd stopped speaking. I looked up. She was either staring at me or staring at the wall behind me. I wondered if I should suggest a short break. She sensed my discomfort. She said she was ready to continue, but she wanted to show me something first. She went to her desk and retrieved a small notebook. She told me Charlotte had given it to her. I asked when. She didn't answer, but she handed me the notebook. It was an expensive one, bound in soft black leather. I don't know if it's because of everything that happened after, and I'm just imagining it now, but I felt there was something portentous about having the notebook in my hands. It was like a moment of recognition. Looking at it, the first thing I noticed was that a number of pages had been torn out from the middle. I flipped to the front. It seemed that Charlotte had begun to use it in 2015. On those first twenty or so pages, the handwriting was poised. The lettering was small and slanted heavily to the right. You were surprised how old-fashioned it looked. As I went forward through the notebook, there were occasions when the handwriting became agitated, worsening towards the final pages. Some of it was so indented by repetitive markings that the paper was damaged. Much of what was written there was impossible for either of us to decipher. We would come to recognize the name Julius Haft, of course. Permutations of that name were written on several other pages, too, both before and after the missing section. Even as I looked, I felt I recognized a few phrases from Charlotte's Frankenstein moment I told you about, from New Year's Day 2017, I could make out the words, all so similar. I saw digital streams, and underneath that underlined the origin that never was. I also noticed that set of numbers that baffled us so as I turned over the page, written out like the long number on a credit card. Opposite those numbers would have been the first of the pages that had been torn out of the notebook. The torn edges had snatches of writing on them, none of it readable. Beyond the missing section, on the pages that followed, I saw the word Marley in large capitals, surrounded by question marks. The word had been underlined dozens of times. Then, on the following pages, Marley seemed to take on a different spelling. It turned into Marquis, or perhaps Marski, or Marscat. The words were so heavily scored into the paper that the letters were barely identifiable. Once again, Charlotte had surrounded the writing with a cloud of question marks. I heard Louise weeping and looked up. Her kitchen and lounge were separated by a long bar with stools. I hadn't realized she'd gone to make a pot of tea. I asked if she would prefer me to leave. She said she'd be all right. I asked if I could arrange to have Charlotte's notebook copied. I didn't get an answer straight away. Louise brought a tray out. She poured the tea. It was apparent she didn't wish to speak, and I didn't want to force the conversation. In the time-honored way I have learned since I first began to work in England, we drank milky tea from mugs while Louise waited for her emotions to settle. After a while, I asked again if she would permit me to make a copy of the notebook. The question caused her some discomfort. She looked away. She shook her head and said she'd have to think about it. I decided to let it go. In order to change the subject, I asked how she came to realize the woman living with Charlotte was in fact Charlotte's twin. Louise said that until their meeting at Liverpool Street, she'd had no idea about Marley. at the cafe all Charlotte could talk about was the dangers posed by Julius Haft up until that point there hadn't been any indication that this Marley was her twin I, I asked about Julius Haft I wondered if he might have had a grievance against Charlotte as opposed to an obsession Louise had asked herself the same question she didn't know she presumed that Charlotte must have had an abortion, perhaps in the summer of 2016. But she'd been forced to accept that Charlotte's contentions about Haft were as likely to be the result of a diagnosable condition, perhaps paranoid schizophrenia. At the café, Charlotte was saying she was desperate to escape from Cambridge, but she didn't know where to go. Even then, there was no talk of a twin sister. Louise was about to suggest that her friend might admit herself to a private clinic for psychiatric care. She hoped this might appeal to Charlotte as a practical means of escaping whatever was burdening her while putting herself in a position to receive treatment for it. They were just about to broach the subject when a woman Louise had never seen before pulled a chair over to their table, scraping the metal legs over the ground. The woman sat between Louise and Charlotte. She ignored Louise. She was staring defiantly at Charlotte. Charlotte said, What the fuck are you doing here? Marley said, Snap! The exchanges between the sisters were rapid. Beyond the first round of recriminations, Louise couldn't recall what they went on to say. All the while, she was trying to process what was happening. Apart from the blonde wig and the exaggerated lipstick, the woman who had forced her way into their conversation was in every detail a Charlotte look-alike. As this sank in, Louise told me she was thrown into a kind of crisis. Nothing about the situation seemed real. She told me that she wanted to scream at them. Barely in control of her emotions, she demanded to know what was happening. But Charlotte and Marley ignored Louise's question. They continued to agitate. Their voices strained as they made comical efforts to sound less fraught in public. Then Marley yanked her wig off. She hurled it at a pigeon The pigeon flapped vertically upwards, setting other pigeons off into flight over the heads of commuters. She shouted something like, And there I was, thinking you was an utter nutter, when all the time you been seeing the grunt on the sly. Without her wig on, Molly's resemblance to Charlotte was complete. Yet Louise couldn't help noticing how petulant Molly was, and how coarse she was. She behaved like a child. It was a style that couldn't have been more at variance with Charlotte's sophistication. In one respect, though, it seemed that the twins were on the same wavelength. From their squabbling, Louise gathered that Marley was just as concerned as Charlotte for their safety. There was talk of secret agents acting on the orders of Julius Haft. It was another bizarre development in what was becoming an unending succession. There were so many twists to contend with, Louise was beginning to feel saturated. When Charlotte took a tube of red lipstick out of her handbag and smudged it unevenly and aggressively around her lips, all three of them found it funny. People were staring. They started to laugh at the absurdity of the situation they were in. Louise picked up the wig from the ground. She was laughing in spite of herself. Just holding the stupid wig up seemed riotous. (laughs) I was still writing notes, but I could hear the shudder in Louise's voice. She stopped speaking then. She was choking back her tears. I stopped writing. Thinking it would be best if I came back another time, I put my pad and pen away. Louise didn't want me to go. She was prepared to continue, she said. She apologized for being silly, but I was determined to leave now. There were a few unresolved questions we might discuss another time, I suggested. Because of an allegation Marley had made in one of her letters, I was wondering if Louise had ever received loans from Charlotte, but this wasn't the time to ask. In any event, I was anxious to get to Kew Gardens for our first meeting. It's all I could really think about. Before leaving, I asked once again if I could have a copy of Charlotte's notebook. To my surprise, Louise agreed. She proposed that we walk together to a photocopy shop not far away. The walk would do her good, she said. I thought I'd ask how she came by the notebook. She said that Charlotte had sent it to her in the post. Charlotte must have posted it shortly before she was murdered.